Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, shalom, friends. You're in for a treat today with some deep learning and processing together at Valley Beit Midrash. So thank you so much for joining us. We're very excited to learn with you. It is very easy to philosophize from the sidelines. Two-state solution, one-state solution, confederation. Do we want status quo? Status quo with a slight adaptation. And um, instead of just philosophizing from the sidelines, there's an opportunity to engage with someone who has committed um, a serious stage of their life to dialogue and bridge building, holding their own commitment and holding someone else's commitment simultaneously. We have been fortunate to have Rav Hanan Schlesinger at Valley Beit Midrash in the past, in person, uh, twice, I think, and I'm thrilled to have him back again. And he is one of the founders of Roots, Shorashim Judur, the Israeli-Palestinian Grassroots Initiative for Understanding Nonviolence and Transformation. Rav Hanan has spent the last eight years meeting Palestinians and building bridges of trust and mutual recognition between Palestinians and Israelis. By and large, religious Israelis living in the West Bank, Judea, and Sumeria. He has lived in Alon Shvut in the Gush Etzion. If you know that area, I, I, I live there for two years, beautiful, about, uh, what, about eight miles south of Jerusalem, maybe, give or take, um, yeah. between Bethlehem and Hebron, uh, between Bethlehem and Hebron uh, for 40 years, for 40 years. So Rav Hanan, thank you so much for being with us today to talk about peace building insights after eight years of meeting Palestinians. Welcome back. Thank you, Rav Shmuley. And uh, good morning or good afternoon to uh, all of those who are listening. What I wanna do, is to divide this presentation into four parts. I wanna spend at the beginning about 10 minutes on a few Torah sources. Then I wanna spend 10 minutes introducing myself and the organization I helped to found, Roots. Then I wanna spend almost 30 minutes on the main presentation that we're focused on in this event. And then 10 minutes at the end for questions and answers. So here we go. First, we're looking at the sources on the screen. Hebrew at some points got a little bit garbled, but it shouldn't uh, bother us too much. We're looking at uh, Ethics of the Fathers. Uh, it reads something like Reki uh, Butpa because of the way the letters got mixed up. It's right in the middle of the screen there. We're reading Hevei Dan et Kol Hadam Lechatschut. That's from Ethics of the Fathers, Pirkei Avot judge every person the scale of merit. This is one of the 613 commandments, according to most of the commentators. Uh, it's based on a verse in the book of Leviticus that I brought at the top of the sheet, uh, the last three words of Leviticus 19.16, translated here as, with righteousness you shall judge your kinsmen. And it looks like our rabbis are reading the verse as saying that you should judge your kinsmen with graciousness, or you should judge them as being righteous, but we're not going here into the exegesis. I just wanted to point out that this commandment is based upon the verse. Why do I start with this? For me, judging favorably is at the foundation of meeting the other, at the foundation of interfaith dialogue, and in our case here, the foundation of meeting Muslim and Christian Palestinians. I have to come with a graciousness of spirit I have to be open to their existence, their story, their self-understanding. I have to have a certain graciousness of spirit. I have to listen and let it wash over me. And to be very, very specific, at the very least, I have to be able to believe that they believe what they're saying about themselves. I may not believe that what they're saying about themselves is true, but I have to again believe that they believe what they're saying about themselves. In so many cases, when we meet 
an other, whether it's Democrats, Republicans, or Jews and Christians, we're saying to ourselves, could they really believe what they're saying? No, they don't really believe it. They're just fooling themselves. They're just saying it for me. But that uh, pulls the rug out from any type of dialogue with the other. At least I have to judge them favorably to the degree that I say to myself, if they're saying that this is what they believe, then that is indeed what they believe. I don't have to believe that it's true, but I have to believe that they believe it. That's judging favorably as far as encountering the other. I wanna to move to another source right now. We're not going deeply into these sources. This next source is from Rabbi Yehuda Leib Alter of Ger, the Sfat Demet, uh, from the Gera Hasidim. And we're looking here at the English that I have on the, on the screen. Uh, the Sfat Demet brings the verse from Proverbs, death and life from the hands of the tongue. And he says, it goes on to quote Ben Sirah in a certain Midrash. Ben Sirah is an ancient book that some of our rabbis considered to be worthy of being part of the canon, the Tanakh, the Jewish Bible. Ben Sirah, in explaining this verse from Proverbs, says, it's like someone who found a glowing ember and blew upon it, lighting upon a flame. Then he spat upon it and it was extinguished. In other words, what does it mean death is in the hands of the tongue? That's like spitting on an ember and putting it out. What does it mean life is in the hands of the tongue? That's like blowing gently on a coal and helping it to become a flame. And then he says that's a metaphor for the truth of Torah that's found everywhere. And we won't read further on in this source, we're being told that we walk through the world and we encounter ember, uh, embers of Torah, embers of truth everywhere. I would say in every place, every house of worship, every philosophy, every culture, every political party, there are embers of truth, sparks of Torah. And in most cases, our tendency is to spit at the sparks of those people who we see as the other, as the enemy. And when we do that, when we spit at those sparks by denying any truth in them, by denigrating them, by not being willing to listen, by ridiculing, we are fulfilling this part of the verse that says death is in the hands of the tongue. We're bringing death to the world. We're bringing death to an idea that could be a true Torah idea. Rather, what we have to do says our author, is to blow gently on that spark that we don't like. To blow gently on it means to listen, to massage it, to try to find a way to find some truth in it, some significance, some legitimacy in it. And when we do that, when we listen graciously, when we give ideas and not just people the benefit of the doubt, when we fill this mitzvah we saw just two minutes ago of judging favorably vis-a-vis -vis ideas, then we're fulfilling the part of the verse in the book of Proverbs that says life is in the hands of the tongue. And it goes on to say later that we are imitating God by using our listening and our breath, our mouths, our speech, our thinking to bring life to the world. In this case, life to ideas, to bring legitimacy to ideas. So this for me is another principle of the encounter with the other, always listening to what they have to say as if it's sparks of truth, which I can either stamp upon and extinguish, or I can find a way to blow in them gently and discover some type of significant truth that's gonna expand me and increase my understanding of the world. Another source we're gonna see right now is from Rav Cook, Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cohen Cook. And this is a source that actually I discussed with Rav Shmuley a few, uh, a few years ago, we're gonna look here at the English. Uh, I had said then uh, in a, a class I was giving in the framework, I think the Valley Beit Midrash, I'd said that for Rav Kook, falsehood is partial truth masquerading as complete truth. Falsehood is partial truth presenting itself as complete truth. For Rav Kook, the world is full of truth, embers of truth, infinite truth, 
God is the collection, the kaleidoscope of all the truths in the world, and he knows how to balance them and recalibrate them. Everything for Rav Cook is true, but everything is not the only truth. There's more and more truths, and to collect more and more truths and see how they're true and how they fit is to become closer to, and closer to God, who's the kaleidoscope of all the truths. And when I take one truth and present it or understand it as the only truth, the exclusive truth, that's when my truth becomes falsehood. That's my understanding of Rav Kook, and one of the many sources that I get that from is what we have in front of us right now, from a piece called The Divine Eye. Whoever reflects on divine ideas in their purity cannot hate or despise any creature or talent in the world, since everything manifests the grandeur and the might of the action of God, right? Everything manifests God. God is everything. God contains everything. At times, he, in this case, me or you, may sense a certain strangeness in some aspect of it. In other words, I'm uh, meeting a Republican or meeting a Democrat or meeting a Jew or meeting a Christian, and there's something strange, there's something that repels me in what they're saying. And Rav Cook explains when you feel that strangeness, that uh, repulsion, it's specifically because that aspect embodies lack. That's so important. Words, what I'm coming across right now, the, the people or the political party or the religion or the idea or the theology that I'm coming in contact with, why do I find it wrong, strange, repulsive? Because it embodies lack. In other words, what that means is it's not what the person is saying that is wrong, it's what the person is not saying which is wrong. It's because they're presenting what they're presenting as the whole thing. And what's wrong with it is what it lacks, not what it is, but what it isn't. It's the lack that makes it bad. It's not what it is, again, it's what it isn't, what they're missing, the part of truth that they're denying that makes what they're saying problematic. That is something, that is the lack, that severs it from the larger life and light of the source of everything. When I present my truth as the only truth, I'm severing it from God's truth, because God's truth includes what I just said, my truth, but God's truth connects it to many other truths. And when I sever it from other truths, when I, when I leave it just as it is, exclusively lacking other truths, that's when it's severed from the larger kaleidoscope, from the bigger picture, from God, from the larger truth. And that's what makes it strange, repulsive. And then Rav Kook, the next paragraph, explains that. It turns out that his hostility and disparagement are not to be directed at what is present in any movement or culture, no, something that a culture or political party that you don't like, but at what is absent in it, what it's lacking, not what it says. What's wrong with the Republican Party or what's wrong with the Democratic Party, or what's wrong with Christianity, or what's wrong with Islam, or for that matter, what's wrong with Judaism, is not what they say. It's what they don't say. It's what they leave out. It's the truth they ignore. Their truth is always truth, as long as it's in a context, in an attention, and in a larger a framework of, of something divine. And I have to figure out what those connections are. In other words, they are to be directed to the disparagement is to be directed at the fact that these, what the person has told me, have not yet completed the process of clarification and unfolding of context to a point of being linked with the higher sweep and the penetrating perception of the sublime ideal of the absolute reality of God, who's the kaleidoscope, in its majestic significance. Now we can talk about these ideas uh, for a long time. I'm just really being superficial here. I'm presenting some sources that for me are at the foundation of peace building, of meeting the other. That when I criticize, and I can criticize what I hear, it's not what they said, but it's what they didn't say. That they presented their approach as the only approach, the full approach. And I should take their approach and add it into my kaleidoscope but always in connection to a larger picture. And I have to give the balance and the proportionality of their truth 
in relationship to other truths, many truths, many, many truths, and the divine kaleidoscope as I understand it. Later, I'll use an expression, the hubris of exclusivity. Hubris of exclusivity, that's my uh, shorthand, what Rob Cook is saying here. What bothers me in what they or they or they or they think is their hubris of exclusivity. Of course, by the way, I also have to find my own blind spots, my own hubris of exclusivity. We don't have time to see the last source that I have on the screen here. This is again from Rav Cook in his commentary on the Siddur, on the prayer book. I will just say there briefly that Rav Cook brings the famous Talmudic statement that these and those are the words of the living God, that there's lots of different truths. And he explains that uh, the truth, uh, God's world is like a house. It has different pieces, different components, different people have to build it, whether it's the windows or the foundation or the, or the doors, everything there is important, but you can't have one piece at the exclusion of the, of the other piece. Uh, I'll just read what he says that, uh, for we recognize that even the approaches and understandings that are to appear to be in opposition one to the other, all of them are part of God's learning. And through each of them will be revealed the perspective on knowledge of God in the light of his truth. A building is constructed of different parts, et cetera. It connects to the ideas we've been talking about until now. That's a little bit of what's in my spiritual backpack as I try to talk with Palestinians. Uh, and it's things I have to remind myself of again and again. We've used about uh, 15 minutes, a little bit more than I thought. We'll now quickly go to the second part of our presentation, which is simply to introduce myself and the work that I do. I've been a rabbi my whole life, living in a lone shoot Gush Etzion, half hour south of Jerusalem, as Rav Shmuley said. I've taught in Yeshivot, I've taught Torah, I've done, I thought, some good within the Jewish world, within the Jewish world. And then eight years ago, it's actually eight years ago and four days, I met Palestinians for the first time, and it changed my life. I realized that I'd been blind until then. They hadn't existed for me. They were transparent. Uh, I didn't see them because I hadn't been trained to see them. My narrative, my identity prevented them from being seen by me. I was so affected that I basically left my job as a, uh, as a rabbi and I became a peace activist, a rabbinic peace activist, you might say, together with Palestinians and Israelis that I met in the beginning of 2014, we founded Roots. In Hebrew, that's Shorashim. In Arabic, that's Judur. The Israeli-Palestinian grassroots initiative for understanding nonviolence and transformation. Roots brings local people, Israelis and Palestinians, to meet each other. People who've never met each other, who would never think to meet each other, who live right near each other, but in completely different worlds, in self-enclosed narratives. We created the only joint Israeli-Palestinian community center in the whole West Bank. It's called the Dignity Center, Merkaz Karama. And there almost every day, Israelis and Palestinians come to meet each other, whether it's little kids, whether it's elementary school kids, whether it's high school kids, whether it's men or women, summer camps, day camps, youth programs, trauma therapy, music therapy, deep, deep interfaith dialogue, deep narrative therapy, which we'll talk about later. And we begin to discover the other in the fullness of his identity. The work of Roots is primarily with Israelis and Palestinians. When I say Israelis, I mean Jews who are very deeply connected to their own particularist identity and to the land. We're talking about usually right-wing Jews, religious Jews, settlers, what's called. And on the Palestinian side, we're talking about people from refugee families who lost everything 70 years ago. Uh, Palestinians who are religious Muslims, observant Muslims, Palestinians who have uh, been involved in resistance to Israel, have spent in many cases years in Israeli jail. The people on the polar opposite sides, 
they're the ones that we're bringing together to talk to each other, to recognize each side's identity and each side's fullness of their particularity. I'll just say one more sentence about that. It's not only about discovering and accepting that the other is a human being. It's also about discovering that the other side has a very, very particular identity that's different than what you thought. And further, your identity in his eyes is different from what you thought. That's enough for the second part of our uh, presentation, introducing myself and the work of Roots. I'll just say that you could look at our website, which is www.friendsofroots.net, friendsofroots.net. And now we'll go into the third part of our presentation, the main part of the presentation, which is some of the insights that I've garnered after these eight years of meeting Palestinians in the framework of, of Roots. So what we've discovered is that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is nothing if not a conflict over identity, a conflict over narrative. Yes, we have deep political disagreements over borders, over security, over resources and refugees and reparations and, and more. And these differences demand a political solution, of course, but a long-term sustainable political solution will never be attained until each side recognizes the identity of the other side. While we seem to be fighting over political tangibles, it turns out that deep down, we are really actually fighting over the intangible value of the other side's recognition of who we know our self-evident truth about ourselves. Until each side accepts the other side for who they say they are, they will never be willing to go the extra mile to grant the other side what they require. And everything I'll say from this point on is an unpacking of, of that. So the vast majority of Palestinians are incredulous when I tell them who I am. They're incredulous at the biblically and historically based identity of myself and my neighbors in Alon Shfut, in Gush Etzion, in Judea and Samaria. They're incredulous at most of the Jewish Zionist identity. They cannot believe that there's such a thing as the Jewish people. No, there's no such thing. They can't believe that the Jewish people go back 3000 years in this land. And they can't believe that when we say this land, the land of Israel, we mean from the Mediterranean ocean to the Jordan River, that that's the biblical land of Israel. Put it differently, they can't believe that this land is really our homeland and our minds. They, they can't believe it. Furthermore, they can't believe that the Zionist movement was founded and sees itself as the national liberation movement of the Jewish people. And that the state of Israel sees itself as the source of the freedom and pride and national expression of the Jewish people. They can't believe that. They have never heard these things explained to them in a serious fashion. And if and when they hear such things, they cannot hear it. It rings false to them. It sounds like a fabrication created in order to deny them their land, their culture, and their very existence as a people. Because the narratives that make up our Jewish Zionist identity are perceived as an existential threat by them, and in point of fact, our identity has been and continues to be a threat to them, because of that, they deny it and they erase it in all strata of Palestinian society and education. Again and again, I meet Palestinians, even liberal educated Palestinians, who think that they can tell me who I am. What do they tell me? They say that you're a Jew, beautiful. The Quran respects Judaism, but it's a religion. It's a faith. It's not a people. And it's a religion, therefore, it doesn't require a land. So why did you come to take our land? Why did you come from New York? Go back to Russia. Go back to where you came from. They deny who I know myself to be in the most fundamental level, and they deny my connection to my homeland and my right to live in it as anything other than a guest. That's my experience. 
And this argument does not over historical minutia. It doesn't matter if every element of my Jewish, Zionist, Israeli settler story can be scientifically proven. I think it's, it's historically true in its broad outlines, but more importantly, it's a narrative that forms the foundation on the basis of which more than a million people organize their self-understanding. It's absolutely true that the Jewish Zionist narrative is what we Jewish Zionist people think about ourselves. In that sense, it's certainly true. It's true that we think that that's who we are. For Palestinians to say it's not who we are is to deny reality. It's to completely misread the human reality of life in this holy land. It's to deny it is fruitless because we Jews, we Zionists and our identities are not gonna disappear and not gonna change. It's not just the Palestinians who are blind to the human reality that surrounds them. The Israelis are no better. My people are no better. So many of us Israelis, we do not dare use the word Palestinian. Palestinian, we say, there's no such thing as Palestinian. There never was a Palestinian state. They're just a fabricated people. They're Arabs like all the other Arabs. So let them go back to Jordan. Let them go back to Saudi Arabia. Go back to where they came from. Many of us Israeli Jews claim that the Arabs who inhabit the land today are foreign immigrants who came seeking employment in the early part of the 20th century. And we bolster our argument by quoting from Mark Twain who visited the Holy Land in the 1860s and described the desolate and depopulated land. We Israelis often say a land without a people for a people without a land. And many of us really, really believe that. We, in some cases, base ourselves on Nachmanides, who visited this land 800 years ago and saw it desolate and understood that the Holy Land doesn't accept anyone but the Jewish people. And the land is just waiting for us to come back. And so we Israelis say, if the Palestinians say that they've been here in their interim for the past 500, 1,200 years, they must be fooling themselves. It can't be. And we further seek to discredit the Palestinian connection to the land by emphasizing that Jerusalem is only, is only the third holiest city in Islam, whereas in Judaism, its sanctity is supreme. We say that Muslims and the vast majority of Palestinians, of course, are Muslims. We say they don't really care about Jerusalem because they turn their backs on it when they pray. They face Mecca. They say that Jerusalem was a, we say that Jerusalem was a neglected backwater when it was under Jordanian Muslim rule. We say that only when we conquered it did we show it love and devotion as a crown jewel. We can say those things, but that's not the Palestinian understanding of themselves. It's just not. The identity of Palestinian Muslims is intrinsically connected to the Alaska Mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the compound around it that they call Haram al-Sharif and the city of Jerusalem, which both are found, which is Al-Quds in Arabic. The holiness of the mosque radiates out to those concentric circles, and many Palestinian Muslims intuitively understand themselves to be guardians of these circles of holiness. They'll give their lives to defend the sanctity of Al-Aqsa. That's who they understand themselves to be. And I cannot tell them that they are not what they say they are. Some Palestinians claim that they're the descendants of the indigenous Canaanite tribes predating the Israelite conquest of the Holy Land according to the Bible. Others trace their roots back to the Jewish people at the time of Jesus, counting their ancestors either among those who accepted the new religion of Christianity or converted to Islam when it swept through the, swept through the Middle East or both. Many don't profess any such traditions, but nevertheless, they've inherited from their grandparents and great-grandparents a sense of belonging to the local landscape and agricultural ways of life that go back hundreds of years. It may or may not be true historically, but it's what they believe. And at least, at least I have to believe that they believe what they say they believe. Palestine may be a modern word, but there's no doubt that those who call themselves Palestinians are deeply rooted in the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. They're not just Arabs. They're not at home in the culture of Jordan or Saudi Arabia or Syria, and they have no other place to go. They belong. 
at the very least, this a fact of their identity. Ridiculing it won't make it go away. It won't make them go away. If we don't listen and come to terms with all these things that they say about themselves, this conflict will continue. Now, it's not for nothing, of course, that Israelis ignore Palestinian indigenuity, indigeneity, excuse me, for it's perceived as challenging the morality of our claim to the land and our presence upon it, and especially the existence of the Jewish state in the land. The very existence of the Palestinians in the past and the presence complicates our existence in this land. That's true, but we have to deal with it. That's the end of the first section of this main part of our event tonight. Section two, here we go. Tragedy is also a central element of both sides identity. And yet both sides pervasively deny the other side's tragedy. You will not find one Palestinian family that was not decisively affected by the Nakba, their defeat and dislocation in 1948. Thousands upon thousands lost their lives in most of their lands. Families were scattered and a land-based culture was uprooted and undone. The trauma, real trauma has been passed down now from us four generations. Myriads of Palestinians inherit from their elders the key to the house in which they lived before the conflict with the Jews in which they lost everything. Remembering the Nakba, tenaciously holding on to the memories of pre-Nakba life and to the connection to the agricultural ancestral lands is a defining element of what it means to be Palestinian today. That's a fact of their identity. But on the other hand, Nakba denial is a central element of Jewish life in the land of Israel today. Nakba denial is as central to the identity of my fellow Jewish Israelis as the Nakba itself is a central element to Palestinian identity. Since the birth of the state of Israel been engaged, the state has been engaged in the systematic erasure from the landscape of any traces of the Nakba. Palestinian villages emptied of their inhabitants are bulldozed over. There are no memorial plaques. Textbooks, Israeli textbooks, tiptoe over it in sanitized language with barely a mention and certainly not by name. Few know about it and almost no one talks about it. Those who bring it up in Israeli society are censured as self-hating Jews or historical revisionists. And it's clear why. The truth of the Nakba undercuts the Israeli narrative, my narrative. If the land was not significantly populated with native peoples before 1948, then there could not have been any significant population in 1948. And even if there were a significant number of Arabs in the land in 1948, what we say is, all they did is go back where they came from, from a relatively short time after they arrived. There's no tragedy in that. If they came in the 1920s or 1930s, so they went back in 1948, big deal. And even if we admit that a limited human tragedy occurred, there is no use making a fuss about it, we say. It happened in a war that they started, so it's their problem. They should take responsibility and get over it. And further, we say, we Israeli Jews say, there was a population exchange in 1948. Your grandparents, you Palestinians, left the land of Israel and back to where your grandparents belong. And our grandparents left your countries, Morocco, Morocco and Syria and Iraq, and came home to the land of Israel. So we're even, stop crying about it. So think so many, I think most Israeli Jews, if they think about it all. And after all, remember, we Israelis say, their tragedy, the Palestinian tragedy is nothing compared to ours. What is the Nakba compared to the Holocaust? This denial of tragedy cuts both ways. We deny their identity, we deny their pain, and they deny ours. Palestinians consistently deny or minimize the Holocaust. Most sincerely believe that the Holocaust was invented or exploited to create the state of Israel and to generate sympathy and support for the state of Israel. In their minds, the narrative of the Holocaust is part of the war against the Palestinians. You know, in 2014, Professor Mohammed Dejane Daoudi from Al-Quds University took 
some, about 20 of his Palestinian students to visit Auschwitz to enable them to become firsthand acquainted with the Holocaust. And Professor Dijani was branded by Palestinian society as a traitor. On social media, on campus, he faced death threats, he lost his job, and the controversy didn't quickly blow over. A few months later, his, tor his car was torched. And all of this is not difficult to understand. The Holocaust or its memory has indeed not been good for the Palestinians. It did indeed play a role in the creation of the state of Israel. It does indeed motivate world support of Israel and indeed its memory does serve to give a pass to Israel for some of her misdeeds vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians. Why should we suffer, say the Palestinians, for what the Germans did or purportedly did to the Jews? Resentment of the Holocaust runs deep in Palestinian society. But for Israelis, Holocaust denial is another form of anti-Semitism. So we say that the Palestinians are anti-Semitic in their opposition to Israel. And we say that their opposition to recognize the Holocaust is further proof of their anti-Semitism. That's what we say about them. Part three, the last part of the centerpiece of my presentation. We Israelis and Palestinians, as I said, deny each other's narrative. We deny each other's pain. We actually deny each other's existence as a legitimate collective worthy of recognition. This denial of each other's identity has become an integral part of our own identity. We cannot be, we Israelis cannot be normative, upstanding Israeli citizens while recognizing the Palestinian story. That's what we think. And you cannot be a good, normative, upstanding Palestinian while recognizing the Jewish-Israeli story. We do it in putative self-defense because we perceive our reality as a zero-sum game. Each side has forced itself into the hubris of exclusivity, wherein if your people is real, mine is fake. And if my people is real, yours is fake. If your connection to the land is legitimate, then mine is illegitimate. We both believe, Israelis and Palestinians, that we are fighting for the truth. And there's only one truth. The key, of course, to a solution is to understand that you don't have to be wrong for me to be right. The key is to understand, as Rav Cook said, as the Sfatimet said, as many others said, as the Talmud says, these and those are the words of the living God. Elu velu divrelu kim chayim. God holds many truths, the kaleidoscope of truths. Sometimes they're contradictory. But to think that one is true and all the others are categorically false, that is the definition, I would say, of falsehood, as we saw in Rakuk. We have to find a way, and I learned this from one of my Palestinian partners, Ali Abu Awad, to fit two truths into one heart. The existence of the Jewish people does not necessitate the non-existence of the Palestinian people. The Jewish connection to land does not nullify the Palestinian connection to the land. The horror of the Holocaust does not require us to ignore and erase the tragedy of the Nakba, the exclusivity which is nurtured as a psychological defense mechanism has become the heart of the conflict itself. I wanna say that sentence again, it's so important to me. The exclusivity, the hubris of exclusivity which is nurtured as a psychological defense mechanism has become the heart of the conflict itself. But it is not denying, in my opinion, it's not denying the other that will enable us to survive in this land. It is rather the acceptance of the other, his story and his pain that will enable us to survive and to thrive. Neither side is going anywhere. Israelis and Palestinians, whether we like it or not, are destined to live in this land together for many generations to come. But the question is, what will be the character of this living together? Many claim that the status quo is untenable. I'm not certain of that. Perhaps the status quo of injustice, of suppression, 
of negation, of erasure, of fear of violent attacks, of steadfast resistance to the other side can continue for decades, even for centuries. But the question is, is it good for them? Is it good for us? I think it's not. Changing it, and it has to be changed, requires a comprehensive political solution. The major problem lies, though, not in coming up, not in coming up with the outlines of such a solution, but rather the problem is the will to come up with such a solution. There will not be such a will for a political solution as long as we continue not to know who they are, not to recognize who they are, not to cherish who they are, and vice versa. That's the crux of the issue. Before we can create a true political solution, we must create deep reconciliation of our mutual truths. We must accept the other for who he knows himself to be. We can no longer fool ourselves that he is who we think he is. We have to learn to accept on both sides, they are who they say they are. They belong like they say they belong. The way to accomplish this, and now I'm closing, is through direct human contact. Encounter with the other, not only in the fullness of his humanity, but rather also in the fullness of his identity, that's the way. Meetings between politicians are not enough. We need meetings between people. But even more than that, economic cooperation is important, but not enough. Sports leagues are important, but not enough. Joint musical endeavors are important, but not enough. We must create frameworks in which we encounter the other in the depths of his or her identity, in which we hear their story and they hear our story. These encounters, to hear the narratives of the other side, to hear their understanding of themselves and their understanding of ourselves are like a dagger to our hearts. For them to hear us and for us to hear them, it's so, so painful, so, so difficult for both sides. It must be done in the right framework and context with trained facilitators, but we and they, I believe, are sick, deeply sick with the illness of the hubris of exclusivity and this is the only way that healing begins, direct human encounters. And otherwise the issues remain and they fester until they explode. Another way of saying this, that we need reconciliation and not just coexistence. Coexistence each side next to the other without really knowing and not really recognizing who they are, living actually in denial of who they know themselves to be that coexistence is actually a formula for a long-term disaster. What we need is reconciliation through face-to-face -face facilitated meetings, identity to identity, and that's the work that Roots has devoted itself to, and that's the work that we are continuing throughout the land. Thank you. Amazing, Rav Hanan. Thank you so much. So deep, the Torah, the experiences. So friends, we're going to open it up for questions here. Um, I see a question from Lauren, and then I see one from Revital. So um, if you want to unmute yourselves, please jump in. Yes, thank you, Hanan. That was amazing, and it gave me a totally different point of view. Just wondering, um, because I've always, since I've read what uh, Micha Goodman read, wrote about separation, he seems to be almost on the other side, though it makes, makes sense to me to cool things down by preventing too much contact between Israeli soldiers, Israeli settlers and Palestinians. But you seem to be saying that wouldn't be so great. What, what do you think of Mika's um, suggestions? Uh, so Mika is uh, very, very insightful and very, very intelligent and knowledgeable. And first let's uh, take note of the similarities between what he's saying and what I'm saying. Uh, Micha and I are both saying there's two truths, there's two realities, there's two perceptions. The difference is that Micha is coming from a totally Israeli perspective. He's not really analyzing the conflict, he's analyzing the conflict between left and right within Israeli society. And he's saying that uh, since there's two truths in Israeli society, we can't favor one or the other, we just have to wait and twiddle our thumbs 
well, we solve our own problems. And as far as the Palestinians, Micha's not concerned about them. Uh, no, I take it back. He is concerned about them. Uh, he's concerned about them, but he doesn't really enter into their mindset. He stays within our mindset. Uh, I accept that everything that Micha suggests we should do, he suggests ways to uh, limit the conflict. Of course we should do that, but it's not enough. It, and, and now he, he knows it's not enough, but he thinks there's nothing else we can do. And he hopes that the status quo is sustainable. So I'm sorry, the status quo with the uh, little changes he's suggesting. Now he may be right that it's uh, sustainable. It's sustainable in the sense that uh, we can continue oppressing the Palestinians for another 10, 20, 30 years. We can make life a little bit better for them, but it'll never, what he suggests will never be enough. It'll never be what they want. I'm suggesting a much more radical path. I'm agreeing that my radical path is impossible right now. And I'm saying the way to uh, prepare the groundwork for a radical path is by, instead of the Israeli right talking to the Israeli left, as he suggests, that the Israeli left and right should talk to the Palestinians. And I don't mean politicians, I mean human beings. And I have the hope that by us talking to them and them talking to us, we will develop the uh, empathy and the charity of spirit that will help us begin on this path towards reconciliation. Thanks, Rav Khanan. So we have Rabbi Tal, and then we have Rav Mel, and then Dr. Fishler. So again, I wanna uh, repeat what everyone said that uh, this has been deep and uh, hugely edifying, very, very helpful in, I teach uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict and um, I have, definitely started taking the discussions in the direction of mutual recognition as you presented it. But somehow talking about mutual recognition, uh, and I think you would agree because you just said that, that's a, just one step on the way to a final um, resolution. And, and so it leaves me uh, wanting more, it leaves me unsatisfied and my question is, what are we, from your eight years of, of involvement with uh, elements on the ground, on both sides, what are we willing to concretely give up in order to make, in a way, tzimtzum, contract a little bit in order to make way for Palestinian presence? And uh, similarly, I would um, be very curious to hear uh, what your interlocutors on the Palestinian side are willing to give up in order to make room for us. Thank you. So, uh, as I mentioned, as was mentioned in the last uh, give and take with the uh, woman who asked, I'm sorry, I don't remember the name. Uh, Micha Gutman has written a lot about what Israel can do to make life better for the Palestinians, but Micha makes it very cl clear that we're, we're not giving up anything uh, in making life better for them because he thinks Israelis are not yet willing to give up anything. And Micha's right. We're not yet willing to give up anything because we Israelis see ourselves as with the backs against the wall, uh, existentially threatened. That's the way we understand the Palestinian intention and the Palestinians understand our intention the same way. So therefore, I understand why Israeli and Palestinian politicians are not willing to give up just about anything. So I don't wanna answer the question what we're willing to give up. I just say, leave the politicians aside for now. Let's bring the people, and this is the work of Roots, to the table and people who think they're willing to give up nothing when they learn who the other is and when they learn who they are in the other's eyes then they undergo a transformation. It, the reality is not what you thought it is. And then we begin to see it's not a zero sum game. We don't have to understand that their identities will throw us into the sea and they don't have to understand that our identities to steal all their land. And then the questions are different. And we begin to see not a zero sum game, but a, but a win-win as opposed to a lose-lose, which is a zero sum game in which we work together with empathy to do what has to be done to create a political solution. But all I'm talking about is to create the will 
to be ready to move that toward that political solution. Hi, shalom. Shalom. Thank you for Sunday and thank you. Rev Revital teaches that course at our school, at IGRCA. Thank you, Revital, for that beautiful question. And Rav Hanan, so good to see you again. We've, we've marched together many times. Um, so uh, my question is, uh, based on your eight years of experience, do you experience any change of will? I understand your philosophy that politically we're not ready to do anything yet, and but creating roots on the ground and relationships will create the seed for potential um, uh, rapprochement in some way. But have you experienced uh, any change in these eight years? I, I think you're an eternal optimist and, and I love what you do and want to, want to help you in any way I can as always. But what, I'm not in Israel now, so I, I just would like to ask you experientially, uh, have, have your, has your optimism been dimmed based on your experience or elevated? And where are we now uh, in terms of, of, of uh, projecting to the future. So Rav Mel, thanks for joining us today. Good to see you. I never said I was an optimist. And, and the truth is I always, I often see the glass half empty. So look, I distinguish, perhaps you've heard this from me before, between the macro transformation and the micro transformations. By the macro, I mean public opinion. Do I see public opinion on either side changing for the better? No, not necessarily. But on the micro, I meet literally hundreds of Israelis and Palestinians, perhaps more than hundreds, who through the work of Roots or other organizations go through the micro transformation that makes them ready for peace. And it's not just ready for compromise, it's to see the other as part of uh, the landscape of the land, see the other as belonging, see the other as legitimate, that empathy develops in which we can move together towards a solution. Are hundreds of Israelis and Palestinians with a new mindset, with a transformed heart, is that enough? No, are thousands enough? We need tens of thousands. Am I optimistic that within my lifetime, we're gonna to get to 100,000 who have a new way of looking at things? I'm not optimistic, but there are miracles and uh, changes on the sociological level that happen when you least expect them. I always say that I don't necessarily have hope, but I certainly see myself as creating hope. And I do that through taking responsibility. Thank you. Um, so, so as I hear you, there is some progress based on the people that you encounter, and but there's a larger group that still needs to be transformed in some way, and and you're not to give up, not giving up. You're taking your stance, and little by little, we're moving forward. Just the last thing I want to say: I'm teaching also Svatimed Rav Cook, and uh, this semester, and I'm so glad you chose all those sources because they're they're great. Thank you. Awesome, awesome, thank you. Thank you. Yes, hi, uh, Dr. Ron Fischler, then, I, and then Michael. Thank you. Hi there, thank you for your presentation and your formulation. I, uh, I'm interested in what concrete examples can you share about what your experience the last eight years has brought in terms of bringing people together? Give me some examples, if you could, of activities, uh, insights uh, from your personal experience. Wow, uh, I'll say it all in less than an hour. I won't take more than that. <laughs> first of all, Roots began eight years ago with a little piece of empty farmland. We created, as I said at the beginning, the only joint Israeli-Palestinian community center in the whole West Bank slash Judean Samaria. We have at that center programs just about every day. And I will say a bit about those programs. But not only that, we now have three other developing centers. We have a Roots Center in the Jordan Valley that's been functioning for three and a half years. We have a Roots Center in Samaria between Ramallah and Nabdus near the city of Ariel that's been functioning now for about a year and a half. Uh, and we have a nascent center in the Southern Hebron Hills. So to see now one center becoming two, becoming three, becoming four is 
is unbelievably gratifying. And in each of those centers, you see people whose hearts are changed. So you wanted concrete examples. I have experienced at least 10 times the following scenario in a roots event of dialogue between Israeli and Palestinian adults. A Palestinian raises his hand and very hesitantly gets permission to speak. And he says, or she says something like this. When I first saw you, Hanan, with your keep on your beard, I thought you were gonna kill me. And I was really afraid. At the second event, I knew you weren't gonna kill me, but I didn't think that you could be a partner. The third time that I met you, I understood that you were a partner, but I didn't think you would really ever understand and legitimize my identity and certainly not accept my connection to the land. And then they break out in tears and we hug and they say, I see that you recognize me for who I am. I've had it really like 10 times that experience. Just a month ago, a, a woman at the end of an activity in a, in a hijab, 30, 40 year old Palestinian raises her hand at the very beginning of of an event, at the very end of an event, and I'd never met her before. It wasn't the first, second, third, fourth time. And she just said, basically what I just said to you in three sentences. <laughs> That's what it's all about. And I've also had Israelis come to me in tears and say, I didn't know. I've lived here all these years. I didn't know. I never met them. And they begin, the Israelis, to see themselves through the Palestinian eyes, and it's devastating. It destroys your sense of who you are. It pulls the rug out from under your identity. And that's really bad and really difficult, and it's really fantastic, because that's the beginning of tshuva. That's the beginning of repentance. Seeing yourself through the other's eyes and understanding that with all the good of your people and your identity and your nationality, there's also bad in it. And we have to not throughout the good, but we have to correct the bad. So we have these adult groups, our youth group, high school kids, Israelis and Palestinians, 20 on each side. You see how at the first meeting they come sitting on other sides of the room, afraid of each other. And the second meeting, they begin to talk to each other. Then we have the dialogue that develops. And then of course, there's the pizzuts, there's the explosion when they realize how each side's identity really nullifies the other side. And then there's a crisis, but then they come back together. And at the end of the year, they're friends and they're different. And by the way, to become the different people they are, they have to challenge their parents, challenge their rabbis, on the Palestinian side, challenge their community leaders. They have to book the, uh, book the system and book the truisms of their own side. And they begin to see themselves as shagarim, of ambassadors of a new way of looking at the conflict. Mm -hmm. It's really, really moving. And I've been doing this for eight years, but you searched just a few seconds where I was gonna cry when I'm saying it. I, uh, it's, it's mind blowing. Amazing. I know we're at our time, but we'll, we'll squeeze in two final questions uh, briefly, Michael and then Judy. Um, I was gonna ask, I think you kind of answered it somewhat, was that you start at the top down or, or bottom up? And I gather it's bottom up. It's people in, in villages near each other, um, and, 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 and Israeli people living in the area. But in one addition to this, I assume is this process also being done with Israeli Arabs and Israeli Jews as well, or is it primarily focused on, on the non-Israeli Palestinians? And it's being done uh, within the green line but not by our organization. It's being done by other organizations. We focus in the heart of the conflict, which is the West Bank slash Judean Samaria. Great, thank you, Judy. Can you see the possibility of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, similar to what happened in South Africa, occurring in, uh, in your area and within the Green Line? So that, is happening today on the people-to-people -people grassroots level in the activities of Roots. Uh, how and when and if it has to be and can be institutionalized, the truth is that 
I'm a grassroots activist, I don't know. It, it seems to me that that type of thing is essential, but I know about it only on the grassroots level, how to institutionalize it, uh, it's not my department. Amazing, amazing, thank you so much. Friends, it's so easy to get caught up in just not thinking anymore, not feeling anymore, caught up in old ideologies of this two state or one, this one state, or this is the path forward, or there is no path. And Rav Kanan offers us a new path of thinking and of feeling and of talking and of being courageous and of being humble. And together we can continue to learn and be inspired by that. Rav Kanan, thank you. And you can support his great work at Roots. And we hope to continue learning with all of you today and every day. Tomorrow we'll be with Professor Christine Hayes, Yale professor um, of, of Talmud. Hope you'll join us for that as well. Rav Kanan, have a great night in Eretz Yisrael. Good. Bye-bye, everyone. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.